0: pastor and his wife were in Myanmar walking through a large Buddhist temple complex when he witnessed something that broke his heart. A large number of very poor people, very desperate people were bowing down to a large golden Buddha And they were stuffing what seemed to be the last of their money into the treasury box and kneeling in prayer, hoping to secure a blessing from the Buddha. And on the other side of the golden Buddha, as he walked around, there was scaffolding and workmen were hammering away because the Buddha himself was deteriorating. And so he saw this situation in which broken people were bowing down to a broken Buddha Asking broken Buddha to fix their broken lives while someone else fixed the broken Buddha. And he thought the insanity of it, the despair of it, hit him when he realized that we're all basically the same. All of us bow down to things. We worship them. We dream of them. We hope in them. We think if I only had this thing, I would be happy. And we lose it and we despair we tend to live for things that don't really love us. We sacrifice for things that ultimately don't satisfy us. It's the reality of our human condition. We're going we're to look in an account in which the gospel came to idol worshipers for the first time. It's the first account of the Christian message actually encountering polytheists, you know, classical pagans, as we call them, uh, The gospel had come to all sorts of people up to this time, but it had not yet encountered true pagans. So we're going to look at what happens with these people who know nothing of Judaism. They know nothing of the Hebrew Scriptures. They have no biblical background. They are very, very different from those early Jewish followers of Jesus. It's Acts chapter 14. We're going to read verses 8 through 20. If you want to follow along as I read, this is Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 8 in this earliest history of those Jewish followers of Jesus. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking and Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and Paul called out, stand up on your feet. And at that the man jumped up and he began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and they rushed out into the crowd shouting, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past he let all nations go their own way, yet He has not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He he provides you with plenty of food. He fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul. They dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up, he went back into the city, and the next day he and Barnabas left for Derbe. It's an interesting passage. It leads us to some some questions. First of all, we've already touched on it. To whom are Paul and Barnabas actually speaking? Like I said, this is actually the first account of the gospel being spoken to pagans. You know, the gospel had been spoken to Gentiles, but it was always to Gentiles who had a previous understanding of Judaism. You know, Paul and Barnabas, they always preached, as, as Peter did, they, they preached, first of all, in the synagogue in any Gentile town. And the synagogue would have two types of people in it. It would have Jews in it, who, who, who it's their synagogue, and it would also have Gentiles who were called God-fearers because they were Gentiles who had come to believe that there was only one God, and that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish God, was the true God, the creator of earth and heaven. And they were not yet ready to convert to Judaism. That would require circumcision. That would re- require strict adherence to food laws. But they had nevertheless come to worship this one Jewish God. And yet here, they're, they're, in, they're in this town called Lystra, and and they're they're. they're preaching to a group of polytheists in the city center. They're actually probably at the city gates, which uh, in that town would have been where gatherings and preaching and things like that would have taken place. And you can picture the scene. Paul and Barnabas at some point have arrived in Lystra. Uh, That was 19 miles south of Iconium, modern-day Konya, today south-central Turkey. Lystra was was a, a town on the main road between... You know, Antioch in Syria on one end, far, far to the west. The west. west. And, and then on the, the other end, you know, on the Aegean, you know, was, was, was Ephesus. And it was the road that connected those. And so this was a heavily traveled place. And at this point, we don't know how long they've been in Lystra. Uh, you know, Luke often compresses his narrative. Otherwise, this would be like the 472nd chapter of the book of Acts. So we don't know if they've been there hours. Or if they'd been there weeks, or if they've been there longer. At this point it says that there were disciples in the town, and so we don't know if those were disciples who had traveled with him and Barnabas or if they were converts, in which case they had probably been in the town a while. But but Paul and Barnabas are near the city gate and they're doing public preaching. The gates were where you know you would have had, you know, people who were disabled would be set out by the city gates so that travelers Hoping for a blessing on their journey might give them some money, some alms for the poor. And, and, and as Paul is preaching, he's talking about Jesus, this, this son of God who's come down to the earth in human form for us sinners... He's preaching and there's this one guy, disabled guy, who's totally tracking with him. He's nodding. He's he's definitely listening in. He's getting excited. Our eyes are getting big. He's praising God and and Paul and Barnabas single him out and they say, you, there, stand up on your feet. And he's like, he can't stand up. He's disabled. His feet don't work. His legs don't work. He's been lame all of his life. He can't do it. But they say, stand up on your feet and it says there's faith there. And he stands up and, and all of the crowd is amazed and they're talking. Among themselves in their in their Laconian language, which was different from from Greek, it, it may have been a very distant Greek dialect, but realize Paul is preaching in Greek to people for whom Greek is their second language, their native language would have been laconian and and so paul heals this man. He's an, he's an apostle. He has that authority. And the crowd is excited about Paul, but they're even more excited about the quiet guy, the older guy behind Paul over his shoulder, Barnabas, who's just sitting there nodding in agreement. And, and so they're getting real excited about Barnabas. And then that's when the procession arrives from the temple of Zeus, which isn't far. It says it was just outside the gates, just outside the city walls. And it and they, they took them a while, though, because the, the priests of Zeus would have had to have picked up two bulls on the way and some wreaths in order to sacrifice the bulls because the crowd at this point thinks that Paul is Hermes, the spokesperson for the gods, and they think that Barnabas, because he's older and quieter and lets Paul do all the talking, Barnabas must be Zeus. And the crowd then starts shouting, the gods have come down in human life. Form. It's, it's understandable. Like I said, Greek is their second language. Some of them would have been quite fluent, some of them not at all. They're talking among themselves in their Lyconian language, and so Paul's not understanding what they're saying. Finally, somebody brings it to Paul's attention that, oh, they're saying the gods have come down in human form and they've just brought these bulls to sacrifice to you. And at that point, Paul and Barnabas do what any good, faithful Jew would have done in the first century. They take their garment and they tear the fabric apart, which is the universal Jewish way of saying, this is blasphemy of God. Now, Paul, Barnabas, they don't want to be Greek gods. They don't want bulls sacrificed for them. But realize these hearers had no biblical context for the gospel of Jesus. They had never read the Bible. They did not believe in the God of the Bible. They did not believe in a holy God of judgment. They did not feel guilty before that God. They did not believe in the Ten Commandments or that they had broken them. They did not believe in heaven. They did not believe in hell. They weren't asking how to get their sins forgiven. Uh, you know, maybe for some of you that sounds familiar. Maybe your friends, neighbors, relatives, associates, maybe you are, are, are regularly interacting with people for whom there is no biblical background and they don't believe in the biblical God and they don't believe that they're sinners and they don't believe that they need forgiveness. And, and they've never, you know, watched Veggie Tales. They didn't grow up with VBS. They've never even heard of a they, they They go to the mall on Sundays. That's how I grew up. And uh, maybe they don't go around sacrificing goats to Zeus either, but they don't have a biblical context. Like these hearers don't have the biblical background. They're not asking, Where can I get my sins forgiven? And so the question comes up How can you talk about Jesus with people who have no biblical background and who don't believe that they need their sins forgiven? You say, Greg, that's easy. You just need to tell them that they're sinners. And so we just need to commission all of the Christians to go around door to door and and make everybody see how sinful and wicked and evil and depraved they are and how liable to God's judgment they are. And and practically, what's that going to achieve is that a whole lot of non-Christians are going to think that Christians are incredibly judgmental and they're going to think that the Christian message is to stop sinning, a message of law instead of a message of gospel. In fact, I think we've actually tried that in American culture for much of the past century And it hasn't really gotten us very far because most people think Christians are judgmental. Most people think that the Christian message is a message to stop sinning. But theologically, there's a bigger problem. Theologically, conviction of sin is always the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not our job to show people that they need forgiveness. It's our job to to preach the gospel and to live it out with our lives. And so how can we communicate the gospel of Jesus to people who do not feel a need for forgiveness. This is one early account of an attempt to do that. Paul and Barnabas are trying to communicate the gospel to people who do not have that biblical background. They're doing it on the fly. This is a summarized narrative. We just get the cliff notes, the brief summary of of, of what the actual sermon was like. And yet, God loves pagans, and pagans need Jesus just like the rest of us. So, second question, how can we talk about Jesus with somebody who's not looking for forgiveness? Well, what we can do is we can do what Paul did, which is to explore what it is that they are living for. Yeah, that's the question that Paul is zeroing in on. It's what he's doing when he encourages his hearers to turn from their various gods or their various idols. He says in verse 15, turn from these worthless things. See, everyone is living for something. Uh, For this, you have to understand a little bit of the background of how paganism worked. And in paganism, there wasn't one overarching God who made you and therefore is worthy of your praise and to whom you therefore owe obeisance and honor and worship and praise. Within paganism, there are all sorts of gods. And every god or goddess has his or her own function. None of them are gods to whom you necessarily owe loyalty, but you worship them because they are tools through which you can get what it is that you're really living for. There were all sorts of gods, and you sacrificed to the God that would give you what it was that you were searching for. So, for example, if you were a warrior, there were warrior gods. There were gods of fertility. If you were a farmer or a herder, there were gods of romance and beauty. If what you really want in life is to be desired by those who are themselves desirable. Hermes, for example, what they thought Paul was was the god of traders, thieves, and athletes. And so if you were a thief and you wanted to succeed in your trade, you would worship the Apostle Paul. You would worship Hermes because he is the one who could enable you to be successful as a thief and not get caught at it. Uh, But everyone was living for something and it was never really about the gods. You know, if you were a thief, it wasn't really about Hermes. You didn't you know, have a heart overflowing with affection for Hermes. You worshipped Hermes. You sacrificed greatly for Hermes. You gave everything, if necessary, for Hermes because Hermes could get you what you really wanted, which was to be a successful thief. Or traveler. um, Or trader. Very often those overlapped a lot. Um, But, you know, you used the gods. If your life is a life where what you really thought would make you happy is having a lot of sexual partners, you would worship certain gods and and sacrifice to them because they could help you get what it was that you were really living for. And so everyone is living for something. Family honor, personal comfort, success in your career, you know, whatever it is. Paul says they're worthless things. And everybody's living for something. And, And the thing is, whatever it is that you're living for, ultimately it masters you. That's why Paul calls them worthless things. He likely had Psalm 44 in mind. What, what, what Riley read earlier about how a god takes the same lump of wood and some of it he fashions into a god and bows down to it and worships it and says, save me, O God, and the rest of it he throws into a fire to burn so he can cook his food. It's, there's an absurdity here where, where these gods, whatever they are you're living for, they, they're going to master you, but they can't really satisfy. And there's always a price. There's always a price. you have to. You know, they're bringing these bulls in because there's always a price. Some of you are living for romance and beauty. You maybe don't think you are, but you are. And there's always a price to that. If you need to be desirable, maybe you abuse your body. You spend long hours at the gym. There's that constant expense for your hair and for various treatments and procedures, unhealthy eating patterns. And then your body, despite all your effort, it starts to look bad. And so you're dropping more and more money on your wardrobe because your wardrobe is what you spend money on when you get to that point in life where you look better with your clothes on, and so you're spending lots of money on the wardrobe, and you're growing older, and your competition is getting younger and younger, and at some point, you aren't all that physically desirable anymore, and you're not able to keep up, and you don't gain the romantic interest that you live for, and because you live for that, your life no longer feels like it's worth worth, worth living and yet all along every step of the way you were mastered every step of the way by that longing for desirability, that longing for beauty, that longing to be known and masters you until finally it destroys you. It destroys you emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, perhaps physically because romance and beauty do not love you. Desirability does not love you and it will not forgive you when you fail. Everyone lives for something. It ends up mastering you. It ends up destroying you. And Paul says, turn from these worthless things. For others, what you live for is is having the perfect family and you'll sacrifice everything to have the perfect family. All those hours making everyone look perfect. The lost sleep, staying up all night, making that perfect Halloween costume for your six-month-old who will not recognize or be appreciated at all. Uh, You know, whatever you live for, it ends up controlling you and mastering you. And so you find yourself angry at your kids. You're angry at your spouse because, because they're keeping you from having the perfect family. There's so much damage done to your family because of your need for them to be perfect. The sacrifice, driving around from one activity to the next every weekend lost, every weeknight lost, because your children can't miss out on anything because you have to have the perfect family. You're living to create that, but then when little Brooks school teacher suggests that she might have a learning disability, you go into full denial mode. No child of yours is going to have a problem, certainly not a disability, and so your inordinate love for the family that you wish you had ends up leading you to destroy and despise the family that you actually have been given by God. And it ends up mastering you every step of the way. And when your spouse leaves you and your children cut you out of their life, the thing that you lived for will destroy you emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. When you look at the bottle of pills after everybody's abandoned you, maybe it even destroys you physically. It's your vision of the perfect family. And it will not forgive you when you fail. Everybody lives for something. What you live for ends up mastering you. Turn, he says, turn from these worthless things. There is always a sacrifice. Maybe it's living to succeed in the business world. You think of all the hours you spend pursuing a deal and getting ahead and building your network and building your career. Because that's what you're living for, you're shortchanging your spouse, you're shortchanging your children, you miss out on their formative years. Yeah, you get them into the really good school where all the children of of perfectionist workaholics go, but your drive communicates to them every day that your career and your success is more important than they are. There's always a cost. There's a sacrifice. Perhaps you sacrifice your personal integrity in order to get the deal. You make yourself look better on your resume than you really are. You make your company look better on the website than it actually is. You make your product look more beneficial than it really is. There's always a sacrifice. Think of all the people you climb over. Think of all the people that you didn't hire because, well, they had disabilities or they had a mental illness or they were disadvantaged and you couldn't sacrifice anything to give them a leg up because you were sacrificing everything to build your career ambition, You think you're in control, but you're not. What you live for, it masters you. And your ambition masters you. And when a new competitor then comes into town and he undercuts your market, as you're sitting at your desk in an empty office, you've had to let go of all your employees, and on the way are the furniture repo people to take even your desk chair. It will destroy you. What you live for masters you and it destroys you because at the end of the day your career ambition will not forgive you when you fail turn he says turn from these worthless things everybody lives for something whatever it is that you're living for and if you're honest before God you can ask him lord what am i living for and when i'm not bowing down and worshiping you what am i bowing down to what am i worshiping what is it if i were to lose it would make me not want to live anymore What is it that I would deny God in order to get a hold of? What is it that I feel I have to have? What is it that that causes insane, crazy emotions in me? That's what you're bowing down to. That's what you're living for. That's what you're sacrificing bulls to. That's what you're bowing down to as your God instead of Jesus. I remember one pastor... He had a guy in his church, young guy, ambitious guy, crazy, brilliant guy. He had the connections, and he told his pastor, he said, Pastor, I'm going to just throw everything toward my career for 10 years. And yeah, my wife, my kids, they'll be fine, but, but you know, I'm just going to throw everything into my career for 10 years, and then I'm going to get incredibly rich with that. And then I'm going to sit back, and then I'm going to focus on serving God and my family. And the pastor looked at him and said, you know, I believe that you really are going to get really rich in the next 10 years because I think you've got what it takes. But I think 10 years from now when you show up at home in your sports car with the Italian name on the back and you walk into your McMansion, I think I think your kids are going to be gone and your wife's going to hate you. And the pastor later said he was wrong about that because it didn't take 10 years, it took 7 years. And he got the relationships backward because it was his wife that was gone and it was his kids that hated him. Everybody lives for something. Whatever you live for, it masters you. Turn from these worthless things, Paul says. Nobody put this better than the American writer and intellectual David Foster Wallace. Wallace was at the top of his profession He was an award-winning, best-selling novelist before he committed suicide in 2008. But before his death, he gave a famous commencement address in which he said this to his graduating class. Because here's something else that's true. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you'll feel weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And in an academic church where a quarter of you families have a terminal degree, PhD or other, where something like half of you have graduate degrees, I can tell you that among the most educated Those in academia, that is their daily life. That fear, that constant fear that somebody's going to find out how little information I really know. It will destroy you. David Foster Wallace saw how you have to live for something. And he saw the consequences. And he fully realized what was happening to him even though they carried him to an early grave. You see, you sacrifice so much for what you live for, and yet in the end it doesn't love you. And it's why you're angry, and it's why you're anxious, and it's why you're filled with such dread and such bitterness and such despair and such disappointment, because it's mastering you. Whatever it is, it's not loving you. It won't forgive you when you fail. Paul says, turn from these worthless things. Last question. So where does the gospel fit into this? Where does Jesus speak into this dynamic? What is Paul saying here? If, if the way that he's communicating the gospel to people who don't believe they need forgiveness is, is through this, then, then how does that gospel fit in? What is Paul actually saying? If, if we're all mastered by something, what Paul is saying is you're going to be mastered by something. Be mastered by something that loves you. And it will forgive you when you fail. If we have to be mastered by it, then choose something that actually loves you. That's what Paul is doing when he goes and and gives this speech to his pagan hearers. He's saying that, that the god of the bible has shown you he says has shown you kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops from their seasons he provides you with plenty of food he even says even though you're pagans this god of the bible the god of creation the real god is filling your hearts with joy even now even though you don't acknowledge him even though you renounce him even though you don't know him even though you worship all of these worthless things these false gods you have not given him a obeisance, you haven't sacrificed for him, you haven't given to him, you haven't served him, you haven't tried to live your life for him. And even though you've been his enemy all these days, moment by moment by moment, he has been loving you. He you wake up in the morning and he gives you a sunrise and the very next day he makes it rise again. And the next day, he makes it rise again. He's been feeding you and caring for you and nurturing you. This God that you do not know, that you have not honored, that you have disobeyed, nevertheless has been loving you every step of the way. If you have to live for something, if it's going to master you, live for something that loves you. Live for someone who loves you. All the other gods take more than they give. But this God, if you have him, if you love him, he loves you. He's already giving you your joy. And Paul's talking to you. He's talking to me this morning. This is Christ appealing through his apostle to be mastered by one who actually cares for your soul, who loves your body, and who cares for your family. See, this These folks, they don't know they need forgiveness yet. They haven't understood the law of God. They haven't read the scriptures. You know, when Paul goes to the synagogue, he carries a message. You are guilty. You need a new forgiveness. Jesus is that forgiveness. But when he's talking to pagans who don't know the Bible, who don't know about God, he says, you are enslaved and you need a new master A master who cares for you. A master who loves you. Tim Keller asks why the people of Lystra were expecting the gods to come down to them. And it's because of their stories. Indeed, there is some evidence. uh, More from Phrygia, which is the province next door. But there were a lot of Phrygians living in, in, in Lystra. And there was an account of a story in Phrygia of of the gods, actually. It was Hermes and Zeus who came down to earth. And they visited to test the hospitality of the people. And the people did not acknowledge them. And they lost out on great blessing because of that. And it's very possible, you know, that, that in all of these cultures we find stories, we find myths, we find legends, we find... Fairy tales that reflect that longing of redemption, that the gods would come down, that things would be restored the, the, the film critic Brian Godawa argues that stories all stories are ultimately about redemption, about the world not being right, and our longing that it would be made right it 's a theme that keeps showing up every in every culture and every age uh, 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 Tim keller when Tim Keller preaches this passage, he actually discusses an essay that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, did. It's called On Fairy Stories. It was originally the Andrew Lang lecture at St. Andrew's in 1939, but it was later published after the war in 1947. And fairy tales are not generally taken uh, with a lot of respect by um, literary critical types, at least much less so then than now, when, when J.R.R. Tolkien's *Lord of the Rings* came out in the 1950s, it was just condemned, in, in every literary critic out there, it was it was you know people said this is childish stuff. This isn't literature. Serious scholars don't write fantasy. But Tolkien sold some books, um, and part of his genius was that he had actually studied fairy tales, or what he called fairy stories and understood the nearly universal longings across cultures and across centuries, um, you know, even, even uh, secular cultures like in the modern West, even among those who have long since abandoned the belief in, in the supernatural, uh, we still become obsessed with, with the genre that today we call fantasy. And in his essay on fairy stories, Tolkien argues that there are four human longings that are almost universal across the globe and through the millennia, And those four longings cannot be addressed properly through realistic fiction. They can only be addressed through fantasy. And what he looks at when he looks at human civilizations, he says that humans universally want to escape death. We don't want to die. We don't think we should. And we long for stories in which death can be escaped. Secondly, humans have always been fascinated by the idea of communicating with non-human creatures. Thirdly, we love stories that tell us that there is a love that once gained will heal everything and never, ever, ever be lost. We want to believe that you can live happily ever after. We want to believe in a prince who will come and who will kiss the earth back to life forever. And fourthly, we long to see the complete triumph of good over evil. And Tolkien points out that in realistic fiction, those four things can never be found because they are never found in this life. And yet, the longing is universal. In culture after culture, throughout the ages, for millennia, these longings surface and form the basis of, of stories, of legends, of myths. Yet, yet in reality, we do not experience them. Every love in this life is ultimately lost. Every life in this in in this in this life is ultimately lost. We don't communicate with sentient non human beings. Singing to my cat does not count. She doesn't sing back to me in English. And and time, and time always goes in the same direction, always advancing ceaselessly toward the grave. And yet the longings are universal. They're told again and again in our stories. And from a Christian perspective, these are, are echoes of Eden. They are a race memory of the human psyche, of a, a time when the world was right, when we did walk in the garden and communicated with God himself, when we had a love that could last forever and ever. A longing for a love to come and kiss us and bring healing, complete healing to the cosmos. A love never to be lost that will triumph over evil fully, finally, and forever. And Tolkien speaks of the value of recovering this experience, these longings, once lost, how how more powerful they are when lost and regained. He writes this, he says, "...the recovered thing is not quite the same as the thing that was never lost." It's often more precious. You see, the redemption of fallen humanity is far more compelling a story than if humanity had never fallen to begin with. It's a story that resonates with us and with our human condition, our, our most basic experiences, those who have suffered, who know the brokenness of the world and who experience the bondage to the very things for which we live. It's a longing written on the human heart. And so the people of Lystra cry out, the gods have come down to us in human form. It's, it's the most ironic statement in the New Testament, well, certainly in the book of Acts. Because Paul and Barnabas have just been telling them about the Son of God who came down in human form to be the very rescuer for which they were hoping and longing. You know, their stories... Their actions showed how great that longing was. And so Paul tells them in verse 15, We are bringing you good news. The good news about Jesus, which he calls the living God or the God who is actually alive right now. It's what all fairy stories, what if they all came true, he's saying. What if God, the real God, who has loved you and filled your hearts with joy even though you didn't acknowledge him, what if he came down in human form? What if he came down so that we might escape death, so that we might have a relationship with a being who is more than a mere human? What if he came down to kiss us back to life, to heal us and to heal the cosmos? What if God came down in human form to love that, to give us a love that you will never, ever, ever lose, so that you will never, ever, ever die again? What if he came down in human form so that good could actually triumph over evil fully and finally and forever? We are bringing you good news, Paul says. The God who made the earth and heavens has done just that. And not only that, but he even went to the cross for us because all of those other gods, when you fail, they will never forgive you. But this God of goodness who has loved you, when you fail, he has already borne that failure for you on the cross in that great ultimate act of sacrifice in which we don't sacrifice for God, but God, our Father, sacrifices his own Son for us. Everyone lives for something. What you live for masters you. Friends, the message we have is that though we are all enslaved, there is a better master, a master who has loved us and who forgives us when we fail. Tim Keller, elsewhere, talks about a detective novel series that Dorothy Sayers wrote. She wrote a detective novel series focused on a fictional character by the name of Lord Peter Whimsey. And Sayers' creation, Whimsey, was the idealized English aristocratic detective. He 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 drove a really nice car. He he knew all about wine and food and women. He kept his affairs in order, literally and figuratively. He spoke German with a perfect German accent and during World War I infiltrated the German lines and went into the headquarters as a spy and was not found. But he was brilliant, and she wrote an entire series of stories, all set in the 1930s, in which he solved all sorts of crimes, All of them focusing on the protagonist, Lord Peter, and yet Lord Peter, whimsy, was brilliant, but he was a broken man. After World War I, he experienced incredible shell shock, what we would today call PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder. He uh, could not go to bed by himself. He had to have a friend or a servant put him to bed every night because of of the fear and the brokenness and the trauma. He could not give orders to his servants anymore because during the war, if he gave orders to somebody, he was sending them to their death. He solved a murder, and the murderer was hung, sent to the gallows, and, and every day he felt the guilt and the shame of having caused someone else's death even though the man was guilty himself of murder. He's a broken figure, empty inside, and then halfway through the whimsy detective series, a woman suddenly shows up in the novels. Sayre's new character is named Harriet Vane. She's a female mystery writer and one of the first women to get through Oxford. Harriet and Peter fall madly in love, and until that point in the series, Whimsy Whimsy had been unhappy, a broken bachelor, until Harriet Vane shows up and her love starts to heal his broken soul. And it's interesting, because Dorothy Sayers, like her fictional creation, was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. Like Harriet Vane, Dorothy Sayers was a writer of mystery novels, Dorothy Sayers looked at her character, Lord Peter Whimsey, and she saw that he needed someone to help him out. And so who did she put in there? A detective novelist, a woman, and one of the first women to go through Oxford. Well, who was that? She put herself into her own stories. Dorothy Sayers looked into the world that she herself had created, and she fell in love with her own chief character, Peter Wimsey. though he was broken and damaged. She wrote herself into the story so that she could kiss him and heal him and make him whole. Friends, that's what God did. God, who created the world, who wrote the story himself, humanity had turned away from God and so we, we in all creation had become damaged by our rebellion but God looked into this world that he had written, that he had created and he loved us. And he longed with loving for all of us. And, and so he gave us a sunrise one day and then the next day and then the next. He gave us rain and harvest and families and homes. And even in our fallen state, he continued to fill the earth with good things, with furry creatures that could document his beauty, filling the waters with fish swimming around and the skies with birds flapping around through the, through, through, through the heavens. You know? and, and he looked upon that story and he saw that humanity was lost. He saw that you were lost, worshiping everything except Him, enslaved to the very things for which we were living. And so He did what Dorothy Sayers did. He wrote Himself into the story so that He could love us, so that He could sacrifice for us, so that He could kiss the world and make us whole. Friends, that's what Jesus did. Only for God, it wasn't a story. He did it tangibly. The God of heaven and earth came down to us in human form, so that in Him we might be healed. Because every one of us lives for something. Whatever you live for, it's going to master you. And yet, friends, we see at this table the God who masters us by serving us, by sacrificing for us, by loving us, and by giving up His own Son in order to have the one thing He wanted most, which was not Lord Peter Whimsey, but you. Let's pray. Oh, Father and our God, we worship your name and bow down before you now because you are the God who loves us. You are the master who cares for us. And so we worship you and we consecrate to you the elements on this table, this bread and this cup, Lord, that you administer the good news to us that Christ has died for us and that nothing will undo that. We thank you for the hope we have of the day when you will come to make everything new and to restore the world. For it's by your stripes, Lord Jesus, that we are healed. Amen.